0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org.
1: We continue our uh, Lord's Day celebration with our Old Testament and New Testament readings today. Our Old Testament reading is out of the book of 2nd Chronicles, chapter 7, verses 1, um sorry, verses 11-18. 2nd Chronicles 7 Verses 11 to 18, if you uh, don't have a Bible or didn't bring one with you today, uh, there should be a, a black Bible like this one uh, in the back of a pew near you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love for you to take that home as a gift from Trinity Church Denver. Second Chronicles 7, 11 to 18, when I conclude our reading, I will declare to you that this is the word of the Lord and our corporate response is thanks be to God. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people... If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading and uh, sermon text for today is from 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10. The book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Let's pray. Father, we come now to to receive your word, to feast on your word, to to hear instructions from a father who loves us, who's forgiven us, and then teaches us now the way of wisdom. So I pray that we would hear these words, that we would love these words, that we would believe these words, and that we would obey these words. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, we continue this week in a series on biblical worship that, we've been, uh, that we started three weeks ago. Um, we, we began with the, the fundamental thesis that uh, God is the center of worship. That the goal, the purpose, the meaning, the assessor of of whether our worship is good or evil, whether our worship is acceptable or not acceptable, is not our emotions, it's not our feelings, it's not our intellect, it's not the practical help we received along the way, or the friends we made along the way for that matter, Um, but rather uh, the the, the assessment, the, the measuring stick for all Christian worship is God. Uh, the question that we should ask that should dominate our singing, our prayers, our meditation on the word, um, the, the even the practice of hospitality, which is oriented towards other people and one another, um, at the root of it is the fundamental question, was God pleased? And that worship, the worship of God's people, the worship of the church is about God. It's not about me. Um, and we talked about the the connection the relationship between um, the worship of the church um and and, and this pattern established throughout scripture um, that begins all the way back at the very very beginning in the garden is repeated then with the tabernacle and the temple, and now with the church in the world um, of a three tiered world um at the center of the world is the worship of humanity, that the people of God gather in the presence of God to worship him, to know him, to have communion and fellowship with him, and to be instructed by him and sent by him. Um, and and then, that, then they are then sent into the land surrounding um, the, the life of God's people to work with their hands, to cause the world around us to bear fruit, fruit that honors God, fruit that cares for people. And that God's intention from the beginning is that his worship would fill all of the earth. And that the worship of God, as it takes place in the garden, and in the tabernacle, in the temple, and how the church is to, is to shape and define um, the, the nature of the rest of our lives and the rest of our work. And so we gather in this room, um, not simply as kind of a break from the rest of life, um, but but to do the things that you and I were made to do. To gather in the presence of God, to worship Him, to glorify Him, um, to, to have our sins forgiven by Him, to be sent by Him into the world. And that, that all of our life, whether it's our homes, our relationships, our families, um, the work that we do with our hands or our minds, um, that all of those things would be shaped and ordered according to what we do here on Sundays, as we gather for worship, and one of the fundamental arguments we made week one and I'm going to continue to make throughout the course of this series is that um, one of the indicators that something is off in the worship of the church is how impotent the church has been in the world, how the the, the church's life outside of the gathering on Sundays um, has not been has not been notably different. Um, it's only even marginally different than the rest of the world around us. You see, the design of God is that the worship of God's people would would, would disciple the nations themselves, and um, that the world itself would be reordered and reshaped as the people of God are transformed in worshiping God. And, and over the course of the last few decades, worship in the church has, has been downgraded. It's, it's, it's spiraled into a kind of reflection of the culture of around us. So we talked in the past uh, about church worship becoming um, a self-help seminar. You come to worship to, to receive uh, a handful of ideas that you can carry home that will help you be more successful, help you be happier, help you be uh, more hopeful or more resilient. Those are actual real sermon titles um, that I watched this week from other churches. Um. We maybe even then think of, uh, in, particularly in this therapeutic age, as the goal of worship is therapy. goal of worship is to make me feel happy, to get rid of shame. It, it becomes largely this kind of um, dive. And, and the, the way that we assess worship then is, um, for in the first model, it's, it's what I helped. Do, do, I, do I have better things to do during the week? In the second model, it's like, how did the service make me feel? So my feelings become the assessor or the, 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 the measurement of all things. And so church as worship as therapy. Increasingly in our day, worship is being reduced to mere self-expression. A, a way of just expressing myself, my own emotions, my own thoughts, my own um, um, feelings. God has become, Christianity has become, in our day and age a kind of accessory to be posted on Instagram. Um, one of the traits that you put in your bio, um, I am a Christian, I, am, um, I, I, I like to worship in this sort of way. And so churches and worship becomes uh, assessed not by was I helped, not primarily by how I felt, um, it rhymed, um, It becomes uh, um, assessed or measured by um, how does this fit with my curated life. And as such, the worship of the churches is is reflecting um, the thoughts and the ideas of the world around us um, and not being transformative in the world that surrounds us. But here's the thing: read in Hebrews, we have not come to that which may be touched, but rather we have gathered in the assembly of the righteous. We have gathered before the Holy One of Israel, the one who created this world and sustains this world. I'm the one described in the book of Revelation as dwelling in unapproachable lights. The center of worship is God. The center of worship is God's holiness. We measure our worship by the question, was God pleased? From this comes every benefit imaginable. But if you begin anywhere else, you are not gathering to worship the triune God, but rather to worship yourself. And so, we move now from last week, the, the call to worship, that the God begins every worship service. That it's God who initiates, not the pastor. Not you getting in your car. But God himself calls to his people, commands his people, come and gather in my presence. Um, And then we are confronted with a problem. Do you know what that problem is? The problem is sin. Let me illustrate the problem by telling a self-condemning story from my time in high school. My mother instructed me that I could not drive to Dallas, Texas with a carload of friends. But a carload of friends wanted to go to Dallas, Texas, particularly to Six Flags over Texas. We were 17. It seemed like the fun thing to do, the right thing to do even. shouldn't be wasting gas on a two-hour road trip with three or four cars. It should be one car, and we could all fit in my mom's Suburban. And so we conspired. Rather than all meeting at my house, we would all meet at the back of the United grocery store. They would leave their cars there. Then we would all pile into the silver Suburban, the third row. It was awesome. And we would drive to Six Flags, spend the day there, come home, go back to United, everyone get back in their cars, and then I would drive home, be reunited with my family so we go to six flags all piled in the same car we return all piled in the same car we get back to united everyone gets back in their cars but something in me said mom knows (laughs) she definitely knows I don't know how she knows but those of you who knew my mom she definitely knows so tried to figure out where else I could go besides home I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to face my mom who definitely knows. Teenagers, your mom knows. She always knows. And so I go home, I walk in, my mom's really quiet. I know that she knows. But I don't know how she could possibly know, but I know that she knows. <clears throat> and she says, literally says to me, Brian, I know what you did. And then I went, oh, I'm so sorry. We just thought we would, it would be better. We could all pile in the car and we go. Then she started smiling. She said, I actually had no idea what you'd done. <laughs> but now I do. So here's the problem that we're confronted with in Christian worship. God has commanded us to come. He's called us to himself. And, and add to it. In him and with him. It's the only place where there's going to be life. It's the only place where there's wisdom. There's the only place where we can know how to live in the world. And yet, here's the problem. He knows what you did. And you know what you did. And maybe it was one specific thing. Or maybe it was just the, the haunting sense of shame and guilt just sits there in our society and with us. And so here's the problem. A God who commands us to come, but we know what we've done. A a God who commands us to come into his presence, but he knows what you've done. The The only place where we can find life, but he knows what you've done. The only place where we can find wisdom. The only place where we can know how to live in this world. Uh, The only place where there's true joy forever and ever and ever. The only place where we can escape judgment. The only place where we can escape hell. But he knows what you've done. The whole biblical narrative outlines this problem. And it pinpoints it in, in worship and how the offering, particularly the burnt offering deals with this problem. So I want to track that through and I want to ask the question, what does this reveal to us about the nature of God? And then a handful of practical steps and then we'll be done. So the problem is our sin. The problem is that we've offended God. The problem is that we've rebelled against God. The problem is that we've refused to acknowledge God or give thanks to God. And therefore, we've refused to obey God and love God and trust that God is smarter than us and wiser than us. And so from the very, very beginning, going back to the pattern that we talked about in the first week, garden, tabernacle, temple, church, how has this been dealt with? Um, And so one of the the most fascinating things that you can see um, is that God has always, from the very, very beginning, we're we're not talking about a New Testament thing, we're actually talking about something that goes all the way back to the garden. God has always dealt with sin. He's gotten it out of the way for us. He's dealt with us, um, dealt with it through an offering that He instituted um, in the, the, the worship from the very, very beginning. And so with Adam and Eve, gathered in the garden, gathered in the garden for the purpose of worshiping God, for the purpose of communing with God, of being instructed from God's Word. They sin. They no longer have access to the garden. Um, but right from the beginning, um, God sacrifices an animal to cover over their sins and cover over their nakedness. Such that um, right away, um, right, right after the garden, after they're expelled from the garden, um, a number of theologians, historians believe that there was still this pattern of coming to the garden. They weren't allowed into the garden, but coming to the garden for worship, um, which is one explanation for why we find Cain and Abel offering sacrifices. Has that ever dawned on you? Like, hey, we don't have Leviticus yet. We don't have Deuteronomy. We don't have all of the instructions for the law. Um, Number of stories saying all of that stuff was just it was, was given by God first in the garden. And so you have Cain and Abel coming to the, um, the front of the garden, offering their sacrifices before God as atonement for sins. The language um, in that part of Genesis reflects this. Um, And then things become uh, a little bit more complicated, a little bit more mature or developed once you get to the tabernacle. So we talked about last week um, that the way that worship is organized in the church, the way that the worship of of God's people was organized in the temple and in the tabernacle, um, was you you began with a call to worship, you see this reflected in the Psalms, and the Psalms of Ascent. Um, when you came to the temple then, you, there were three offerings that would mark the worship of God's people. And the first, um, and, uh, and the, the one that we're, we're looking at today, is this, the, the offering of ascent or the burnt offering. Um, and this was meant to be um, an offering that, that atoned for um, the, the sins of God's people. Sorry, this is the guilt offering, not the burnt offering. Um, The the guilt offering is what you needed in order to ascend before the presence of God. Um, Next week we'll be talking about um, the burnt offering. Uh, But from the very beginning, um, as the people of God would gather in the tabernacle, before they were allowed to ascend into the presence of God, before they were allowed to hear the word of God declared over them and to them, um, they would gather and a sacrifice would be made and that sacrifice would atone for sins. It was a a guilt offering that was meant to cleanse them, to deal with whatever sins they were carrying into um, the presence of God. Um, as we move next week into the burnt offering, um, there, there is a, in the burnt offering that the people of God would actually ascend into the presence of God, but before you could get to the burnt offering, in other words, before you could get to the payoff, the whole reason why you'd come to the tabernacle or to the temple, your sins needed to be dealt with. And so from the beginning, God established the offering for guilt, the offering to deal with sin. from the beginning, He made a way for people who who had no business in his presence, who brought sin into his presence. He made a way for that sin to be dealt with, with the offering for guilt. The blood of an animal would be killed, and the people were then free then to ascend into the presence of God because their sins had been dealt with. Now in the church, one of the things that actually begins to progress as you look at the history of Israel, it starts really with David, develops even further with Solomon. Um, and you kind of you see it reaching its climax now in the church um, is that the, it, it began with um, merely sacrificing animals. And so the offerings of the people of God were brought they would sacrifice an animal. But there's no talk of songs. Um, what David begins to introduce into the offerings um, that are taking place in the tabernacle, and then with Solomon in the temple, um, is that accompanying these offerings would be the singing of God's people. They would sing psalms in the presence of God, and see this um, this fully transition then um, in the life of the church as the one sacrifice, the one blood that needs to be spilled, namely the blood of Jesus, is offered, and then what's left is the people of God singing in His presence. Um, one of the more Maybe it's just struck me. It's like a fascinating question. It's like, when did the church start singing? Why do we sing? Like, where else? On, it's a strange thing, right? Admit it's strange. It's strange. Like, where else on earth do you go? Like, you know what? Let's sing. Like, you go to a restaurant on a Friday night. Someone just stands up and says, you know what, everybody? Let's sing. Like, you don't do that. Maybe the waiters will sing or somebody else will sing. But, but I'm not going to go to a restaurant and pay so I can sing. doesn't work that way. You go to a concert sometimes to hear other people sing, and then sometimes you sit by the annoying people who are singing, Uh, but you came to to hear you too, but now you're hearing Joe from Lakewood. Uh, And so, like, like, where did singing come from in the church? Well, the the answer to that is it came from David. Accompanying the sacrifices that took place in the temple, um, he he began to hire people to lead singing, to lead music with the church, so, so that... Um, As the people of God gathered to offer sacrifices, they would sing with the offerings um, being brought before God. And now, in the New Testament church, Jesus Christ has come as the sacrifice, as the final blood sacrifice. Um, He he covers all of the offerings that we're going to be talking about over these three weeks. He, He covers the guilt offering. And when he covers the guilt offering, what's left? If there's no more blood to be spilled when we gather in the temple before the presence of God, What's left? Song, and this is why we sing, and we sing when we um, when we gather here for the guilt offering. And so the um, the places this accords for us, or the um, where this happens for us, is we begin every week with a call to worship, um, and immediately after our call to worship, as we sing, um, we kneel in the presence of God for the guilt offering. Acknowledging that that we've brought sin into this room, that sin is dealt with in Jesus. We confess those sins um, and we're reminded right there, because of the offering of Jesus, that our sins are forgiven. So the guilt offering takes place. So I want to ask this question, though. A question I think is key for us to understand how... Our confession of sin and receiving pardon every week shapes our world and the world around us. What does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about the character of God and the heart of God and the desire of God? That Week after week after week, you and I show up in this room and we've screwed up. Like, week after week after week. Think about this. And some of you committed the same, like, sin. Like, last hundred weeks running. Like, imagine if you had a son. And he was really into plastic swords. And for a hundred days running... The sister came running in, screaming that her brother had called her a dragon and beat her with a sword. Like a hundred days. Like one day, okay son, you don't do that, Here's some discipline, stop doing it. Second day, a little sterner, it's less cute. Sometimes it's cute. It's not cute, now it's bad. It's two days in a row now. You understand. It takes a little while to learn these things. And you kind of want to feed the desire to kill dragons. You just have to kind of get the sister disassociated from dragons. So it um, might take a few spankings or something to happen. If um, so that's work. Then day three. In runs Molly. He called me a dragon crying. He started beating me with the sword. Um, and now it's starting to get frustrating. Day four. We're breaking every. We're melting down all the plastic swords in the house. We're going to melt them into a cup of some kind. We're getting rid of plastic swords. No more plastic swords. You haven't figured out where swords should be used or where they shouldn't be used. We're getting rid of the swords. What if he goes and finds new swords? Because you can always break off a twig, and now you have a new wooden sword. Um, what if he finds a little metal pipe? And the, then things are getting dangerous. Like um, it just keeps on. It just kept on going and going and going and going and going. And going like. Can you sympathize for a moment about how, like, at some point, like, this is not, we've got to find a way for this to stop. Like, forgiveness is going to get really, really hard after a while. But every single week, every single week, we show up in this room, and we kneel on the ground in the presence of God, and we confess our sins, and every single week... But we hear the words, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Like, do you believe that he does that? That week after week, we gather in the presence of God. Week after week, we bring the same junk, the same pride, the same lust, the same arrogance, the same selfishness, um, the same utter disregard for God's laws and God's words. Um, we, um, we bring the same way that we spoke to our wife or disrespected our husband this week. We bring the same way that we neglected our children or were too harsh with our children. Um, children, you bring the same ways that you disobeyed, maybe sneakily, but you disobeyed your parents this week. Um, we bring that same stuff over and over and over again. And yet every single week, Every single week for thousands of years. God says that in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. What does this tell us about God? I mean, what must he be like? The patience and the long-suffering. For God who would extend, joyously extend mercy upon mercy, upon mercy, upon mercy. Listen to First John. Verse nine: "If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want you to think about those two words: faithful and just faithful, he will always forgive your sin. Like if you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive your sins. Which is why we can show up here every single Sunday and not be terrified. Like not be walking on eggshells. Not be me walking into my house after a long day in Dallas with all of my friends in the Silver Suburban. Like, like we can walk into this place knowing, n- knowing that we gather in the presence of a holy, glorious God, a God who despises, hates sin, but who is faithful to forgive it. That we can come into this room and, that, like, if this wasn't here, He's faithful to forgive sins. Um, Then then somebody should stand outside and warn people. Like, hey, I don't know if he's going to do it this week. Like, you're going to go into that room, you're going to call upon the name of the Lord, and he might kill you. But he's given us this promise, this promise in Jesus, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive your sins. But we need something more even than faithfulness. Oh, it's a wonderful promise. It allows us to come to this room and not need to warn people off and not maybe need to run away and not need to tremble going, like, what's he like? What's going to happen this week? Uh, maybe he's going to forget to forgive and he's just going to, like, blow things up. Um, but we also need a God who is just to forgive our sins. Because if he's faithful to forgive sins, but he's not just to forgive sins, um, th- th- we don't have a good God. But what God has done in Jesus Christ, and only in Jesus Christ, and for all those who have faith in Jesus Christ, is that he has promised, I will be faithful to forgive every sin you confess. And because of the blood of Christ, I will be just to do so. Your sins have been paid for in Jesus Christ and by faith in Jesus Christ. So that when the God of the universe commands us to come, and when he issues his call every single Sabbath day to come into my presence, to come to these waters and drink deeply of all that God is, we can do so with gladness. Even when we know and acknowledge the horror of our sin, the horror of our ways, whatever wickedness you have spoken or done this week, God still calls and with confidence and joy we can gather in his presence. Not because of your righteousness, not because of your goodness, not because of all the great things you did this week or all the sin you avoided, but because he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Have you ever had a relationship that was broken because of something you did? And you couldn't make it right. Maybe the person was just so angry, so hurt, whatever it was, um, that, that no matter how many times you said you're sorry, no matter how many times you confessed what you did wrong, that there was no way that relationship could be restored. And all you wanted to be able to sit down and and have a beer with that person again or, or to eat a meal with that person again or just to laugh with that person again, just to be together, but you couldn't. God is never like that. Please hear me. He is never like that. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us. That's good too, right? He doesn't just forgive us; He, he actually wipes it off of us. He, he goes to work by His Spirit, uprooting, cleaning sins out of our lives. It'll take the whole of your life. But that's the promise of God. In other words, not not only is he not satisfied leaving us ostracized because of our sins, he forgives us and reconciles us to one another and here's the glorious news of the gospel. He doesn't just forgive you of your sins. I mean, he goes to work by his spirit reclaiming you, renewing you, restoring you, going to war on your sin with you and in you. He forgives us and he cleanses us. And so every Sunday we gather, called by the God of the universe, The very first thing we do after we acknowledge his call is we get on our knees and we confess our sins. We confess our sins because we want to go further in. We want to see more. We want to eat with him. We want to see him in his word. We want to listen to him speak. We want to receive the blessing of God and be sent from here. So we gather and we kneel and we confess. And we stand. We lift our heads and we hear good news. That in Jesus Christ your sins are forgiven. I love um, the Book of Common Prayer, particularly the 1662 version, where every morning for morning prayer it says this after you confess your sins Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, desires not the death of a sinner. You know how precious that is to me every morning? Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, desires not the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live. Here's what confession and pardon teaches us every single week one of the most glorious and basic truths in the universe. You should know that God hates sin. Sin is evil and wickedness. It spreads death everywhere. And God is absolutely opposed to it. He despises it and hates it. But he loves to forgive sins more. He loves to forgive sins. Like what happens here every single week is not just some sort of religious or legal loophole. It is the work of God, the desire of God, the delight of God to forgive your sins. I mean, fathers, I mean, is there anything more precious than one of your children coming to you and confessing their sins? to be able to say, I forgive you, daughter. I forgive you, son. We gather at this, in this room, we confess our sins before God. And He is delighted. And He is faithful. And He is just to forgive our sins. So in closing... I'm going to draw some practical steps. How do we confess our sins? And how should it shape the way we parent? The way that we are married? The way that we deal with annoying, particularly sinful roommates? Because it's not you, it's your roommate. I want to begin here. God gets to define sin. Not the spirit of the age not modern sensibilities, not anybody's hurt feelings. Sin is defined by God, and it's defined by God according to His Word. And and one of the, the, the things that is absolutely unavoidable in any age, we like to talk about how hedonistic or lawless our age is. Our age is not lawless. It just refuses to submit to the law of God. And so instead it has a whole other set of laws, oppressive laws that people have to submit to in order to be righteous or good. I, I mean... That's 2020, right? And 2021, and so far, 2022. Um, hopefully, it'll end soon. But like, whether we're talking about COVID, or we're talking about the, the way that racial justice issues arose in the country, and the whole dialogue around that, um, everything was absolutely, I mean, we live, if anything, in a highly legalistic age. But, but here's the thing. The sins we confess here are not the sins as defined by the broader secular culture. It's not sins as defined by um, anybody's hurt feelings or good feelings. Um, It's not sins as defined by your hurt feelings. It's not sins defined by anybody but God. God defines the nature of sin, the sins that should be, must be confessed in the Bible, in the law of God, in the Scriptures. And so... Takeaway, if your roommate said something that you didn't like and made you feel bad, they may have sinned against you and they may not have sinned against you. But your response to what they said is not the measure of whether or not they sinned against you. Rather, the word of God is the standard of whether or not they sinned against you. Parents, you have a standard given to you by God to whether or not your children sinned, whether or not they should confess something. And you should abide by that standard, not other standards. The Word of God defines for us what is good and what is evil, what is sin, what is not sin, and therefore it defines for us what must be repented of and what must not be repented of. One of the sins you should avoid is the sin of confessing sins that aren't sins, which is a sin. Only confess what God commands you to confess. So when we gather in this room, we kneel in the presence of God. When you're um, dealing with uh, sibling fights, uh, which some of you may experience. Our household doesn't experience at all. um, Whatever the things might be. um, What you must guide your children in. um, They maybe need to confess sins to one another in in, in addition to God. um, Is... You need to lead them to confess sins that need to be confessed, not sins that aren't sins. Now, there's all kinds of situations that require wisdom, all kinds of situations where people are are behaving in not sinful ways, but ways that are just like, come on, please, come on. And absolutely, like disciple your kids in that. But don't ever call your, your, your child to say, I'm sorry, to confess a sin that isn't a sin that make sure in your homes, in your life, with other people, you maintain that God's standards are the standards, not anybody else's. In addition to God setting the standard for what sins should be confessed and what must not be confessed, um, our confessions of sin should be specific because sin is specific. So when so we gather in this room and we kneel on the floor to begin to um, confess our sins to God, they, they need to be specific sins, not vague feelings of things. <laughs> like you need to confess, not just a general like, oh, I was sinful this week, but, uh, but oh God, I, I, I lost it. Oh God, I was greedy. Oh God, I was prideful. Oh God, I was harsh. Um, but whatever you need to confess, confess specific instances of sins in the presence of God. Not a vague sense that you are sinful sometimes, but specific sins. And I would say the same thing um, as we learn to do that in the presence of God. We need to learn to do that with one another. Like, husbands, confess specific sins to your wife. If you were selfish, if you were harsh, if you lied, if if you, whatever the thing is, actually confess what you did and say, I'm sorry I did this. Um, uh, confess sins to neighbors, to friends, to children. And I would plead with you, parents one of the greatest gifts you can give your children is to be quick to repent of sin to your children. When you sin against them, own it. And so we, we not only um, must make sure that we confess only the sins that the Bible defines as sins, um, we also must know that repentance is never ambiguous. Turning to God and turning away from sin is always specific. We must turn away from particular behaviors, particular beliefs, particular attitudes, particular ways of speaking to the living God and what what God has said. The last thing I'll say is confession is humble. Um, One of the reasons that we kneel uh, when we gather here on a Sunday, when we come to uh, a time of confession was close. He almost got to me. I don't know who sent him, but I've got my eye on you. Um one of the reasons we kneel is we actually believe that uh, that physical postures train us in how we're to relate to God. And so we kneel on the floor for if you're physically able as a as a posture, it teaches us humility. It, it teaches us that that. We don't just waltz in and stand before God. We actually are pleading with God. We need something before God. We need mercy before God. And so we kneel as a sign of, our, a sign of humility in his presence and, and confess our sins and ask for mercy. And this is one of the, the most difficult things about Christianity and frankly one of the most difficult things about relationships. Because at the heart of Christianity is you have to confess your sins. You have to admit your need of mercy and grace. You have to admit the need that you deserve judgment and death. And you're desperate for the mercy of God. In other words, Christianity is not just like an add-on to kind of, kind of fill out your life so you of have a more holistic life. Um, Christ, um, uh, confession of, of sin is at the heart of what Christianity um, is. It begins with an acknowledgement that I've sinned against God and I need His mercy. An acknowledgement that I can't save myself. An acknowledgement that I can't pull myself up my own bootstraps. I can't make myself worthy. We live in a day and age in which you are enough is like a mantra. And so we come and we humbly kneel before God. And how many relationships are you aware of in your own life that remain broken because nobody will humble themselves and confess their sins? So we confess the sins that God defines as sin. We confess sin specifically. And we confess sin humbly because sin is bad. It's very, very bad. But we also receive his pardon. Here's the glory of it he has promised to forgive our sins, he's promised to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so here's another problem I see, and I pray God would build a culture here that resolves this problem, is is so often we talk about confessing our sins and believing in some vague sense that God has forgiven us of our sins, but we don't all the way down in our bones believe that God really has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. He no longer holds any of it against you. Um, he's not the kind of father that you come to. And he goes like, I mean, I know we talked about it and I forgave you. But, but really, do you remember what you did wrong? That's not what God is like. No, he forgives your sins and he cleanses you of it. And he casts it as far as the east is from the west. He no longer holds your sins against you. He's not going kind to of hold it on his hand, kind of looking at you sideways. Um, every time you walk out of church, like he has forgiven you. He has forgiven you. He has forgiven you. He does not hold your sins against you any longer. And if this text in 1 John is right, which it's the Bible so it's right, he would be unjust continue to hold your sins against you. I think we think about the forgiveness of God in some sort of like heaven and hell way, like out there somewhere. Um, In the end, I know I'll be saved because God will forgive my sins someday. But do you know that right now, this morning, when you knelt on the ground, whatever it is that you confessed in the presence of God, He forgave you. He no longer holds it against you. He's not waiting for you to now walk out and do a bunch of good works this week so that you can kind of get your account to zero. He's dealt with it completely. Right now, today. And if this is true of God, oh, that it would be true of us, that we would be happy, joyful to forgive those who sin against us. Do not hold the sins of others against them, waiting for them to pay the penalty. But all of you, you'd be free, you'd be free in the presence of God, free to confess your sins and know He no longer holds it against you, but free then to live as the children of God, washed and cleansed and forgiven with no red in the book at all. And you would be overjoyed to give that gift to others. To children, to spouses. Forgiving as you've been forgiven. So all I can say about receiving his pardon is, oh, receive it. Receive it as an existential reality right now, not something to be anticipated merely in the future. Oh, have faith and hope that it will happen in the future. But receive it and believe it now. And give it. Give it now. If there's someone in this room, you still hold their sins against them. Maybe they've asked for forgiveness. Release their debt. And so we gather. We gather in this room, called here, invited here, commanded to come. And right when we get here, the God of all the universe, the Father, the one who dwells in absolute, unapproachable light, the one who is pure and holy, whose just condemnation of sin will go on forever and ever and ever and ever, but before anything else happens, He commands us to clear the air, to confess our sins, to confess what we've done in rebellion against Him. And He is overjoyed to forgive those sins, to sing over us and to receive us as a glad and happy Father, eager and just and faithful to always forgive our sins in Jesus Christ. Let's pray and prepare for communion. God, it is a marvelous thing. A marvelous thing that you not only declare over us that our sins are forgiven, but then you immediately invite us to a table to eat with you. To, to, To not only affect our reconciliation, but to demonstrate it. Your Father, who invites us to commune with you, to fellowship with you, and to eat and to drink with you. So, God, I pray that we would trust your good promises, that we'd trust your declaration over us, and that we'd marvel at what it tells us about you. In your name we pray, Amen.